Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Curtis Lockhart, Head of Research at the Charter Cities Institute. Our guest for today is Sebastian Malaby. Sebastian is a Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and a contributing columnist for the Washington Post, where he previously served as a staff columnist as well as on the editorial board. He's the author of The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, which won the 2016 Financial Times McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. And he's also written More Money Than God about the history of the hedge fund industry and the world's banker about the late former president of the World Bank, Jim Wolfenson. Sebastian Writing has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Financial Times, and The Economist. Enjoy. So welcome to the show, Sebastian. Thanks so much for coming on. Good to be with you. We're going to talk about development and the World Bank and a man named Jim Wolfenson, who led the bank for 10 years from 95 to 2005. We'll talk about Wolfenson's legacy because he sadly passed away last month on November 25th. So it's, it's a good moment to look back on his tenure. And you're a good person to have this discussion with because you literally wrote the book on, on Wolfenson and his time at the bank back in 2004 called The World's Banker. But first, before we got into any of that, tell me about being there in South Africa in 1994 when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. <laughs> it's actually 1990, so February 1990, 94. Sorry, he was elected and, in 94. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. And it was kind of an extraordinary time. I, I was living based in Zimbabwe as the sort of roving Africa correspondent for The Economist magazine. I used to spend maybe a quarter of my time in South Africa, staying with various friends and sleeping in their, on their couches. And one weekend, I was doing this in Natal, in the east of uh, South Africa. And the news came out that Nelson Mandela was going to be released from jail. I think it was the next day. So I immediately went to the airport, flew to Cape Town, and drove to the prison where Mandela had been incarcerated for much of his 27 years in jail. And there was this sort of hubbub of cameras, and I, I have this vivid memory of the um, poor old TV presenters having to keep the audiences happy while the long, long, long delay in the proposed release time spooled out. And so they were reduced to saying things like, this is probably the most beautiful prison in South Africa, uh, <laughs> just to fill the time until he came out. And then Mandela came out of jail, and you could see him for literally 10 seconds fleetingly as a sort of flood of journalists and cameramen, cameramen obviously having normally the uh, toughest physical build, but also the largest weapons in the form of big cameras <laughs> to obstruct you and get in your way. And so we all got a glimpse of him before he was shoved into the back of a car. 
and driven to give his first speech for about an hour into Cape Town. So all the journalists, including me, you know, ran to their hire cars, drove at top speed into Cape Town to be there when he arrived. And again, there was this massive delay. And I remember going into the central square of Cape Town where he was going to give his uh, address. And it was so packed and crowded that my feet were not on the ground. I mean, the, the crush of the people in the square lifted me off the ground. And the excitement and people were getting a bit frenzied because it was super hot and nobody had any water to drink. And you could hear stores being looted and glass being smashed at the fringes of the square as people kind of got things to drink. And And I remember Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of Cape Town, coming on the stage and trying to get everybody to calm down because the excitement was such. And so it really was a, a, a euphoric moment. And I thought, you know, here I am. I'm, I guess I was 27 years old. And I thought my career would be downhill from then. With that great introduction onto the world's banker, and I thought before we we got into Wolfenson's legacy at the bank, there are a few building blocks that we should establish. And I mean, first, you frame the book really nicely. I thought it was published back in 2004 in the wake of 9-11 and its aftermath. And you say at the start that the World Bank's development mission has really kind of always been linked to security. And there's been, you said, I think you go over three phases or, or, or waves of this security development nexus, if you will, that have impacted the World Bank's functions. So can you talk about this a bit, perhaps first starting with the World Bank's founding in, in 44? You know, the founding in 44 was very much motivated by a desire to avoid a repeat of the 1930s when economic relations among nations broke down. You had protective tariffs and, you know, a breakdown of the international currency system fueling hyperinflation in Germany and contributing to the backdrop for the Second World War. If reparations on Germany had been replaced instead by a World Bank style or Marshall Plan style development program for Germany, probably the German population would have been less embittered and it, there might not have been the, the background for Hitler to rise to power. So the motivation for both the creation of the IMF and the World Bank in 1944 was very much about avoiding another world war. Then if you scroll forward to 1960, when the soft loan of the World Bank was created and added on to the sort of commercial lending side, or the almost not quite commercial, but semi-commercial lending conducted by the main part of the World Bank, the IBRD. The creation of this soft loan concessional window in 1960 was very much driven by the Cuban Revolution of 1959. Mm -hmm. the, the soft is the precursor to the IDA loans? This was the IDA loans, and this was the creation of IDA. And uh, IDA was created in 1960. If I get the details wrong, you'll correct me. Uh, I have to confess that, as you said, I published the book in 2004. So normally I'm fairly good at remembering what I wrote, but <laughs> it was 16 years ago. So yeah. that is the second wave, that the sort of sense that with the Cold War intensifying, the need, the geopolitical need to assist countries that might fall to communism with development lending on concessional basis was evident. And so that gave rise to, to IDA. 
And I guess the third wave I was referring to, I presume, is the post-9-11 one, where there was suddenly a sense of the importance of failed states and the threat they pose to international security. Afghanistan, a failed state, had obviously been the place where al-Qaeda had been able to organize and from which it could launch its attacks. And in order to prevent more state failure and more vacuums in which non-state bad actors could find shelter, the World Bank was actually not just the World Bank, but kind of development assistance in general underwent, I guess, a third wave of attention around the idea of, you know, if if you don't give development assistance, you're going to face failed states and security problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in addition to this security uh, development nexus, another building block you could say is about the we should cover the factors that uh, you mentioned hamstring the World Bank in the book, and and you point I think to to two big two big factors that significantly slow down or constrain the the bank's ability to properly do its job. One is the sort of we could call it nimbyism is a is a common term uh, nimbyism of of the NGOs, and you have some some great stories around this. And that point is no matter how small or inconsequential the NGO, there is the possibility that they're still able to derail a multi-million dollar project if they raise enough stink, right? And then the second factor is the bank's uh, governance structure, and in particular, its shareholders. So can you go over these two key constraints? Yeah, I mean, I think they're very much linked in the sense that the sort of story I tell at the start of the book, which I think sort of illustrates both parts of this constraint on the World Bank is to do with Uganda. This is the Bujigali Bujigali Dam. And the story is essentially about a Californian NGO, the International Rivers Network, which campaigned against the financing of this dam in Uganda. And there were a few things that struck me about this opposition. One is that Uganda did have a big need for electricity. That was clearly identified as a constraint in terms of poverty reduction and growth in Uganda. And so a hydropower project on its face was not a terrible thing. Of course, when you do a dam, you want to worry about the environmental consequences and also the sort of human rights slash political consequences because you're going to displace people. And I went to Uganda and I found the group that according to the International Rivers Network in California, was sort of the local grassroots group representing people who were upset by this dam and whose human rights were being compromised. And I basically found that this group was not a proper grassroots group at all. It was what you might call an astroturf group where um, foreigners had come and put the astroturf down. There were no real members of this group. It was funded by outside aid agencies and when I went around the site of the dam with a graduate student from Kampala University who translated for me and interviewed just people living nearby the site, you know, the ones who were upset were the ones who were not being relocated because the ones who were being relocated were getting pretty decent compensation to go set up somewhere else. So the whole idea that people were being forcibly displaced was not true. And 
you know, yet if you had sat in your office in Washington, D.C., as I had done for much of the time around the period I did this book, as a member of the Washington Post editorial page, you know, you'd receive this press release from this nice, seemingly nice Californian NGO saying terrible things are happening in Uganda and this dam is going to damage the livelihoods of villagers. You know, you might well have believed it. And so I think it's both that NGOs oppose World Bank projects. It's also that they tend to be strong in countries that are big in terms of aid donations, whether it's in the US or in Holland or in Scandinavia. And those countries in turn have members of the World Bank board that will put tough questions to World Bank staff if they are being lobbied by these NGOs in their home countries. So I think that sets up a constraint. And this was very much when I when I wrote the book, it had got to the point where basically all, ban, all, all dams had been discontinued. The World Bank simply stopped funding them, which is a ridiculous position for the bank to be in. It's supposed to be doing development projects that had pulled out from one category entirely. So that was the NGO kind of factor. Do you want to comment on the kind of the bank's governance structure or shareholders? I mean, you brought it in a bit in that they're linked, but I think in the book you do chat about, you know, the G7 having uh, meetings every year and, and changing the focus year on year, and yet the bank being blamed for a lack of focus when it's really being imposed on them from these other uh, entities. Yeah. I mean, it may seem quaint in light of today's Situation. I mean, today the situation is essentially there's a, a withdrawal of, of interest from international organizations. You see the UK abandoning its commitment to a 0.7 development assistance budget. You see, you know, the US turning against the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization. So we have much bigger problems in international governance today. But if you go back to 15 years ago when international governance was in better shape, nonetheless, the problem was that you had national governments that were keen to announce grand objectives, and then another set of elected leaders would replace them three to five years later and come up with a a new set of grand objectives. And in each case, the sort of implementing challenge would be passed off to international organizations with the World Bank front and center. And it would just become too much. There would be this profusion of multiple mandates, difficult to meet them all. And if you overlaid that with not only lots of mandates, but also lots of sort of safeguards. So I talk about this a lot in the book that the the World Bank's board was very keen, particularly the northern shareholders, very keen on having safeguards built into the project so that the environment was protected, human rights were protected and all that. And all of that is good, but you can overdo these things because you drive so much precautionary box checking that you slow down the World Bank so much that the borrowing countries cease to want to borrow because it's such a pain in the neck to extract any kind of project finance. So I think the shifting mandates is one problem that shareholders sometimes impose, and then sort of unreasonable degrees of compliance around the mandates. Okay, good. So that sets us up well. We kind of got the history of the World Bank from its founding till today with those three waves of security development. We got kind of the big factors constraining the bank's, I guess, 
speedy and timely lending practices in the NGOs and in the stakeholders or governance structure of the bank. So now enter Jim Wolfenson. Before talking about his legacy, maybe just tell us about the man, right? There haven't been many biographies on, on World Bank presidents, except perhaps Robert McNamara, but uh, you know those books are probably focusing on other parts of his life. So why write about Wolfenson? Wolfenson was an unusually colorful person about whom to write. You know, he grew up in Australia and was a Olympic fencer. And he then moved to Britain and made a huge amount of money as an M&A banker along the way, picked up music, played the cello, played the cello with some rather famous people like Yo-Yo Ma, and performed in, in Carnegie Hall. Now, it helped that he was a big philanthropist and gave a lot of money to Carnegie Hall. But nonetheless, he became a rather good musician who would fly back and forth between New York and London, buying two seats, not one, on the Concord, so that he could put his cello next to him when he crossed the Atlantic. And he was also just a sort of uh, an extraordinary personality. He was a charmer, a seducer, a sort of almost a chameleon, you know, whoever he met, he would adjust his own temperament and views so that he could be on their wavelength. He didn't therefore have his own views quite as clearly set as perhaps one might wish, but he was very good at connecting with others. He knew how to push your emotional buttons. He could be tempestuous and lose his temper, and he was he was vain and thin-skinned. So he had big failings, but also some quite big qualities. As one person said to me, of course, it was an economist, Jim Wolfenson is like the current account surplus of a country. He's net positive, but there's a big negative number on, on one side of the ledger. And I think that was a good summation. Very, very econy way to, to have a take on Jim Wolfenson. So just from the commentary that I've seen around his death last month, some label him as one of the more effective and even perhaps the best World Bank president, and they typically cite four main achievements. First, right, he ended structural adjustment programs. I mean, this is, a, of course, debatable, but by and large, ended structural adjustment. Second, he repositioned the bank's mission, really focusing it on poverty alleviation. Third, he, he pushed for debt relief, although your book says the story is a little more mixed on this one. And then fourth, he actually listened to and started dialogue with critics from civil society and the NGOs you alluded to earlier. So first, I mean, do you agree with the claim that, that Wolfenson is probably the most effective World Bank president to date? And second, would you say that those four accomplishments are, are Wolfenson's major legacy at the bank, or would you add or alter these in any way? I think he may well have been the most effective. I mean, effective is a funny word because in managerial terms, he was not effective. And the internal restructuring that he sponsored, I think, caused more disruption than it was worth. But he was very effective as an external communicator and as a sort of builder of bridges between the bank and the outside world. And I think that was very healthy. You know, to the list of achievements that you mentioned just now, maybe implicit in them, but I think not quite, is the decentralization of the bank such that a lot of the staff moved out into the countries that were the recipients of the loans and grants. 
Yeah, you gave the story of Bolivia, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, a sort of desire to put the country in the driving seat, as the slogan of the time had it, true in Bolivia, but also not just Bolivia. I mean, I, I think I tell a story about Uganda and the way in which technocrats there were very much empowered and supported by the bank. And Uganda for a while was the poster child for poverty reduction and successful development in Africa. Of course, Museveni's government is less flavor of the month now. But in the 90s, it very much was a success story. And I think the bank you know, spotted uh, promising governments and got behind them and empowered them. And ultimately, I do believe that's the right way to go. You don't have the authority as the outside lender to tell the country what to do. And if you try to do that, it won't work because it's, you know, they'll sign on the dotted line of your loan agreement and then go away and not do it. Because the domestic political pressures on decision makers would exceed any leverage that an external lender might have. So I do think that putting World Bank professionals in the field, decentralizing the staff, and making it more of a kind of you know, the borrower is the client and we need to advise and support the borrower. That was sort of a natural thing for a relationship banker to do. And Joe Wolfenson was that. And I think that was a good instinct. Yeah. And I see the bank as being in sort of this unenviable position where it's this public sector institution, right? So it's criticized and, and sniped at from the right for being this slow, quasi-governmental, bloated bureaucracy with the wrong incentives. But at the same time, at its heart, it, it, it promotes free market principles around the globe. So then it's also criticized from the left about you know, all the things that that brings, or, or they say it brings, exacerbating inequality or globalization and, and all these other things. Has, so having said that, has this awkward position changed at all since you wrote the book? And, and how does this kind of boogeyman to both sides influence the bank's prospects for longevity over the next few decades? Right. After, I mean, 1944 was a while ago. Is, is the bank due for a, a shakeup? I think that left-right pincer movement that you describe was extremely salient at the time I wrote the book and even more so actually just before I wrote it. So the high point was at the 50th anniversary of the bank's founding in 1994, there was a 50 years is enough campaign, very much led by the left, saying that the World Bank was the handmaiden of globalization and this had to stop. But at the same time, the right, through different methods, less of a sort of NGO-style campaign and more of a think tank-driven research paper type of attack, you know, was criticizing the bank for saying, look, it's just too sluggish. And in a world of enormous cross-border private capital flows, who needs this government institution? I think what's happened since then is that that kind of pincer movement is probably no longer the salient threat to the World Bank, partly because I think that the purest market view has probably receded in the public debate. I mean, we're a long way now from the Thatcher-Reagan 1980s. And I think most people on the right have made their peace with 
a significant role for the state in certain kinds of infrastructure and 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 you know the value of governance i think is broadly accepted but the modern division as you know is not so much this sort of traditional left right one it's a kind of populist versus technocratic division and i think that's a problem for the bank because the bank is clearly uh, technocratic and populists are not necessarily going to like it and so there's sort of a populist isolationist impulse in the world which is going to view the world bank as superfluous not because it's public sector just because it's internationalist this is a different kind of critique so whereas a republican in the u.s in the year 1990 might have been feeling a bit purist and free marketish and saying the world bank is no good for that reason a modern trumpian republic republican is simply saying listen make america great again and forget about the rest of the world so it's, it's, it's a different attack. And then the other new thing, of course, is that the division between China and the West has become far more important. And China, although you know a significant stakeholder in the World Bank, has felt that it needs to get behind things like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and sort of create alternatives to the Bretton Woods system because it's not not entirely convinced that it will ever get a fair voice inside the World Bank. So I think there is a sort of splintering of globalization into a Western bloc and a kind of Chinese-centric bloc, which you see both in technology, but also in other aspects of globalization. So the Belt and Road Initiative is obviously a challenge in some form to a, a world in which the World Bank is the chief policeman of global financial flows. So the, the private sector kind of versus the state, the private sector came up in, in the answer. So I, I, on this line, you're probably aware the World Bank publishes the ease of doing business index every year, you know, ranking countries on, on several categories of starting a business, right? There's registering, there's getting permits, electricity, property, et cetera. And this index was recently put on hold. And last I checked, at least, it's being reviewed as many in the development community uh, kind of disagreed with the rankings or thought they incentivized a race to the bottom in some way. So having said this, what, what are your thoughts on, on the Ease of Doing Business Index? I always used to think of it as one of the most successful projects that the bank had uh, come up with, actually. I mean, it seems to me that defining what it might take to encourage inward private investment is a public service. And creating an index usefully creates competition amongst developing countries because they want to be high up in the rankings. And, you know, you can criticize any index for missing something or for underweighting something. Just like whenever you've got a competitive entry system into college, people are going to say, well, you could design the entry system differently and you're underplaying people who've got this characteristic or that characteristic. But at the end of the day, what's better, to attempt to measure good governance or to turn your back on the whole question of good governance? And uh, I'm squarely in the corner that says, better to try to measure than not to. Yeah, I, I completely agree. My My thinking is, well, okay, we do away with this index. What is the alternative? That, to me, there's no other 
useful index or database that measures these sorts of things. And they are super useful for businesses looking to open up or, or start in certain locations that, ha- that completely lack data otherwise. Right. And for countries seeking to understand what they ought to do As a in order to attract business. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I guess to broaden the discussion, so rewind, right? You're, you're uh, as you described at the beginning, you're this African correspondent at The Economist. You're, you're in Zimbabwe and South Africa in the early 90s. So you're interested in, in, in thinking about international development from, from early on in your career. And that's kind of reading through your book. That's really what I see your Wolfenson book as being about. Being a journalist, you know, you, you very skillfully wrapped it, wrapped it up, I think, in this really charismatic, fascinating subject. And he's charming. And at the same time, he's explosive and vain and egotistical. And he's kind of Shakespearean in that way. And it makes the much duller, to some people, story about development that you actually wanted to tell a little more palatable to a wider audience. But right, reading the book, it seems the real meat of it is about the timeline and, and kind of the fluid nature or changing nature of development thought over the decades. Am I right on this or, or completely off the mark or, or what are your thoughts? No, you're, you're totally right. I mean, I think the trick as a writer is to communicate important ideas to people in a way that that actually want to read. And I think having a strong personality at the center of the story helps that. And also, I mean, in the real world, things get done by actual people. And so I think sort of writing about ideas in a disembodied sense is less true to reality than combining an intellectual story with a personal one. So I've done this in various books. I mean, the story of the World Bank, as you say, is partly the story of Jim Wilfinson, the man who ran it. It's also the story of the ideas from development economics that were being applied by the World Bank. So there's a kind of, there's an intellectual story about the development of development thinking. And then there's like how the rubber hits the road when it's actually applied to Uganda or Bolivia or whatever. And I've done that with other books. So I've written about hedge funds. It's a different kind of subject, but the similarity is there's an academic finance discipline which has evolved views on whether markets are efficient and when they're efficient and and to what extent they're not and therefore what inefficiencies could be turned into profits by traders. And then you go look at the actual traders and see how they did it. And I have done this with central banking too, writing about the evolution of monetary economics, but doing it through the personality of Alan Greenspan. Yeah. And I mean, we don't have time to go through over the decades, the the you know new development fad uh, or development theory that was in vogue. I'll just kind of quickly synopsis and then we'll talk about how it's updated since the book came out. But right, you kind of go through this timeline where in the 1950s, the development theorists that emphasized physical capital. In the 60s, it kind of shifted to human capital, right? Investments in education and health. In the 70s, under McNamara, there was this you know, integrated rural development and, and more agriculture focused, and there were some population control activities. And then in the, the 80s, we saw this shift towards structural adjustment programs or SAPs. Uh, some people call it the Washington Consensus. And, and right, it's a focus on macroeconomic policies. And the thinking being, I guess, no matter how many projects you fund or schools you build or how much capital you invest, if you have rampant inflation or no price signals or poorly run state-owned enterprises, none of it's going to work. 
And then I guess moving on from that or adding to it in the 90s, while the structural investment programs kind of continue, and there's this continued focus on macroeconomic policies, there's an increasing consensus also that the politics and the institutions around these economic policies also matter. So if you have a ton of corruption or lack of political transparency or political legitimacy, none of these economic policies are, are going to work out. And so with that very brief synopsis, to me, and I want your, your opinion on this, the big update to development thinking since the publication of your book has been kind of twofold. First, I see the the spread and now ubiquity of, of randomized control trials and, and using them for evidence-informed policymaking of the kind that Duflo and Banerjee and Kramer won a Nobel Prize for. And then second, I see the fact that industrial policy now is on the World Bank's agenda again, especially with uh, Justin Lin, who was the chief economist in the early 2010s, taking the helm. And I kind of see those two things as the biggest changes since your, your, your book was published in 2004. Do you want to comment on, on any of that? Would you change or add anything to that? I think your summary of what happened up to, you know, circa the mid-2000s is exactly right. I wouldn't change any of that. In terms of what you're saying happened after that, I, I agree that, you know, randomized controlled trials have been an interesting novel edition. It's kind of a different sort of edition. It's not a kind of general theory of the case. I don't think about development. It's more a, a micro, you know, okay, supposing we are going to do schools, let's get better at doing it. So, you know, the, the old quest for economic growth was, you know, should you intervene through infrastructure or for human capital or, or whatever it was? I think Duflo and Kramer and Banerjee, not talking about that, they're talking about if we are going to do this certain intervention, how would we do it best? How would we know it's working? It's a slightly different lens they're looking through. I, I guess the other thing I would add, though, is that the kind of conclusion I, I pushed at the end of my work on the World Bank, which I think was sort of moderately, at least internalized by Robert Zellick when he was president of the World Bank, because I knew I, I, I talked to him about it quite a lot, was that you know the, the real role for the World Bank should be to figure out its comparative advantage. And you know development is a huge subject. You've got to kind of pick your shots. And the comparative advantage of the World Bank is that it is a multilateral institution with lots of different types of expertise. And so the kind of the quintessential project should be something which requires political coordination across countries with multiple countries. And the World Bank is a multilateral institution, so it can do that. It should require big money because the World Bank is good at being a custodian of large amounts of cash. And it should require technical input. So if you think about hydropower project, which is going to affect three or four different countries that border each other, or if you think about green infrastructure, sort of a, an environmental investment push that tries to address the externality that's not just national but global in terms of emissions. These are things where the World Bank has a comparative advantage. And I think Bob Zelik did actively think about that, did increase the commitment to environmental finance. 
I can't cite you chapter and verse because this was the period when I was writing about hedge funds or something else by then. But I do know that that discussion occurred because I had it directly myself with Bob Zellick. And I guess just being cognizant of time, so I, I know you fast forward a bit from the publication of, of the book in 2004 and in 2010, and this is kind of the last thing I wanted to chat about, you wrote an article about Paul Romer and about charter cities for the Atlantic called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Ending Poverty. And I just wanted to ask a question or two about that piece because it's it's great and it lays out both, you know, the promise as well as kind of some common critiques of charter cities. And I mean, just just up front, so the charter cities model that Romer outlined in his now pretty famous TED Talk in 2009 is, is a little different from CCI's, from, from our model. As you rightly put in, I think, your article, he did advocate low-income country like Honduras ceding some land to a high-income country like Canada, and then the high-income country comes in and enforces its rules and governance structure, etc. And like you and others, we saw that as a bit neocolonial. So our model instead advocates this public-private partnership between a real estate developer and, and the host country, and then the developer has a long-term kind of incentive or interest in the success of the city because they benefit from the increase in land values that come from, you know, urban development and, and greater economic activity. And so there are some other differences, but I'll just stop there and just say what struck me about the article is kind of how sympathetic to the idea you become towards the end of it, especially compared to the claims of neocolonialism and, and neo-medievalism at the beginning. So did your opinion of charter cities change over the course of writing the piece and speaking to Romer and others? And if so, how? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I thought of it as an intellectually fascinating idea and a politically incredibly challenged one. And I think I wrote the article in the spirit of, you know, here is this entrepreneurial professor who, despite winning the Nobel Prize, you know, quit his position at Stanford and went off and started a, an education tech company. So he was somebody who didn't mind taking on new challenges that were kind of long shots. Any startup is a long shot. And Charter Cities was certainly a long shot. So I, I think that's the spirit in which I wrote about the idea and I guess I still feel the same way. I mean, it's 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 an intriguing idea, the notion that you create development through sort of internal competition inside a country where you have one model of a city that's working under great rules and people can vote with their feet. You know, there's this sort of classic political science text, exit or voice, right, where you either get to vote or you get to vote with your feet. This was a good in, in, incarnation of that. Have you spoken with Romer about the idea since, I mean, the article was now a decade ago. Have you, have, have you guys spoken since? Actually, we, we had one chat, which was about a totally different subject. Namely, we disagreed about Alan Greenspan, but I, oh. haven't, I haven't gone back and talked to him about Chat Cities. Okay. Because, yeah, I mean, listening to him on a podcast with Tyler Cowan, he still seems to support the idea. He's just not actively flying around the world to the places you mentioned, like Honduras and Madagascar, talking to presidents about implementing it anymore. 
Well, again, looking at the time, it, it looks like we're up. So that was great. And that's all the questions I had. So Sebastian Malaby, thanks again for coming on the podcast and for the great discussion. Thanks, Curtis. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.